New York's elections are right around the corner. Welcome to this Appeal Political Report Roundtable on the Queen's DA election, a race that has truly captured people's attention due to the remarkable degree to which mass incarceration and the need for serious criminal justice reform have been at the core of the campaign. First, some context. Richard Brown, who served as the district attorney here for 28 years, announced earlier this year that he would not seek re-election. This set up a crowded Democratic primary with seven candidates running to replace him. Brown passed away in May. Assistant DA John Ryan is currently occupying the position, but he is not running in this election. The Democratic primary is scheduled for next week on June 25th, and it is expected to decide the overall winner in this Democratic county. There will be a general election in November as well. Today, I'm excited to talk about this election and its stakes with three New York journalists who have done an amazing job covering it all year. David Brand from the Queen's Daily Eagle, Christine Chung from The City, and Aaron Morrison from The Appeal. Hi, everyone. Hey there. Hi, thanks for having, thanks for having me. Um, so, so I guess my initial question into the race is that local day elections are often very quiet affairs. Richard Brown was unopposed six times in the past while running for re-election, but this year's election has really exploded in terms of local visibility and organizing and also in terms of the buzz it has received. What do you think has made this race break through and capture the imagination of people and the demands for change to this extent? I could go first to talk about that a bit. I think it shows the power of the movement to shine a light on the power of prosecutors across the country that has been informed by races in recently Philadelphia with Larry Krasner in Boston with Rachel Rollins. And because Queens is massive, basically the size of Philadelphia and Boston combined, uh, this is a real opportunity for a major county, a massive county to uh, affect some real criminal justice reform in the prosecutor's office. There's also a lot of media who live in the area. And because it's the only really big ticket election in New York City right now, I think so many of us have begun or continued paying attention to this. So the, the timing really helps. And there's so much movement on the ground here in Queens. I'm sure Kristen and uh, Aaron can talk about. Yeah, totally. I think to what your question mentioned, the fact that D.A. Brown, right, who was a D.A. for 28 years or so, um, you know, he died a few months ago. The fact that it's an opportunity for a, a serious change in Queens is another reason why a lot of eyes are on this race. It's been a long time since there's been an election for DA, so naturally people are curious about it. And the field is also really crowded, seven people, and when it's um, an exciting race that has a lot of promising candidates, people are going to watch. And, and I'll just add that I, I kind of like how symbolic this race can be. I mean, if you think about it, Queens is home to roughly 2.4 million people. There are roughly mm -hmm. 2.4 million people incarcerated in this entire country. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so true. just like the, the symbolism of, the, you know, of you know, a place like Queens having a real form, its legal system, I think, uh, its criminal legal system, I think is, is really uh, what's drawing a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's so true. I noticed that the other day looking at a statistic that it was almost the population of Queens was also the population of people incarcerated in the country. And I thought that was really powerful. It's cool that you noticed that. Um, yeah. I think Queens has become like the spiritual heart of the progressive movement and the movement of the Democratic Socialists of America. And so that's drawing a lot of attention to the race, especially in the wake of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez winning uh, her congressional primary and then going into D.C. 
But I think it's also, it's more about Ocasio-Cortez. It's more than just about Ocasio-Cortez. I think it's about the movement of people on the ground who deliver the victory for her. And there's such a powerful grassroots movement of organizations that have been advocating for justice reforms and amplifying the voices of people uh, who are incarcerated or people, communities of color who are experiencing over-policing. And that has been so strong and so vocal and I think really heartening to see the power that these, that these grassroots movements have uh, been able to wield. Mm. And on the political side, I think eyes are on the race to see if the AOC effect is real and can sustain another election cycle. Like David was saying, this grassroots push, DSA, real justice PACs, groups like these, leading to her upset of a really long time incumbent, which is a huge, huge defeat for the Queen's Democratic Party. So people are waiting to see if this is more than just a one-off um, and if it's going to happen again with Tiffany Kavan. David, you mentioned Krasner in Philly and Rollins in Boston as kind of the flag bearers of the movement around changing the way DAs work and operate. Um, and they both have actually just endorsed one of the candidates in this race, Tiffany Kavan. How much is the existence of that movement kind of around the country resonating in this in this campaign? And are the alignments around the race corresponding to what we have seen elsewhere? Well, I think I think the existence of a nationwide movement is really powerful in this campaign, and you see that in uh, the contributions to Caban's campaign, especially uh, in the most recent 11-day uh, pre-primary report. She's got more than 4,000 contributions from all across the country. I think really aided by an endorsement from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but more importantly, Ocasio-Cortez sending an email soliciting contributions to her massive email list. What I think is kind of funny about Rollins and Krasner endorsing Caban is first, uh, Councilmember Rory Lansman, who started the, the, who was the first to announce his candidacy and was the, the most progressive, was billing himself for many months, almost a year, maybe more, as the Larry Krasner of Queens as uh, in terms of being a, a reformer. The other thing, Rachel Rollins, who made her endorsement of Caban today, back in like February, when Mina Malik was still uh, rumored to be announcing, she was about to announce, she, her, her people first uh, reached out to my former colleague, Christina Carrega, told her that Malik was thinking of announcing, and we were reporting some stories about it for the Queens Eagle. And Rachel Rollins like responded to one of my stories that Nina Malik had retweeted saying, whatever you need, I got you or something. And now a few, few days before the primary election, she endorses Caban. So that part, I think, I think that, it, that Caban has become a symbol, a uh, political right. symbol for many people wanting to uh, attach themselves to as well. Um, one thing that I would add is I think we're seeing a lot of language that's from the progressive uh, prosecutor movement language that's been used by Rosalind, uh, sorry, Rollins and Krasner being repurposed in this race by candidates other than just Tiffany Gabon. I've heard Melinda Katz talk about restorative justice quite a few times as well. She drops the cure violence model a lot. Tiffany Gabon talks a lot about how she's a decarcial prosecutor, not just a progressive prosecutor. And then we're also seeing, I, I think this is in the wake of one having a, outlining a decline to prosecute with, but a lot of the candidates in this race have done similar things as well, and have been talking a lot about what specific charges they would not prosecute, as opposed to the discussion centering around what they would prosecute, right? What constitutes the crime? So I think that's a really important shift that we've seen um, resonate or reflect in this race as well. Definitely. And I, and I think we could, it's safe to say, I actually, I just spoke to, uh, to Tiffany Caban this morning, um, mm. and 
it's safe to say, or at least she told me that she certainly hopes this wave of uh, progressive um, prosecutor, the, the, the movement of, of progressive prosecutors, you know, she certainly hopes that plays, uh, plays out in her favor. She, you know, she mentioned the recent Virginia victories mm-hmm. who, um, mm-hmm. you know, who, who beat uh, out, you know, the more conservative uh, establishment there. So she's certainly, you know, well aware. And, and I would even say banking on the idea that this carries over into uh, mm-hmm. to next week's primary. Yeah. And I think, and there, you, sorry. I think a question oh, though is, sorry, uh, do the people of Queens care, right? Are people paying attention like in Southeast Queens and other parts of Queens, other than just like AOC, Bastion, you know, Astoria, Long Island City area, do people actually care about these endorsements? Rollins and Krasner, we, we don't really know. Yeah, that's, I think that's so key because Southeast Queens, as usual, one of the most powerful voting blocks in the entire country has been kind of ignored when it comes to reporting. Uh, and I think ignored by, by some of the candidates. And I, I don't, I question how much Caban has spent time there. I think more recently, a lot of people have been canvassing the area uh, from the Caban campaign, but I think mm-hmm. for many months, they never went there. And I think a lot of the campaigning and canvassing and grassroots stuff there has been a little more under the radar. And I really think who wins that area is going to win the uh, election. Uh, and I, I know at least uh, Melinda Katz and um, Mina Malik have opened offices in Southeast Queens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, Katz, Katz has, has two. Right? She has so, two. Yeah, I heard that as well. And she has the endorsement right of Congressman Meeks, who leads. Yeah, she's Democrats. got like all the almost all of the uh, leaders there, except yeah. for maybe like James Sanders, who he's a state senator who backed Lanceman. Malik's been, interesting. Like, Malik's been doing a lot there, and she's known in, in the community, I think. It's interesting that Meeks has endorsed Katz because Meeks used to work in the Queen's DA's office with um, Greg Lasak. Uh, I wanted to take a step back before we go into the, the, the candidates and, and the contrast between them to just look at the current DA's office in Queens because this race is often yeah. said to be an opportunity to overhaul the legal system because of how unreformed, so to speak, the Queen's DA office currently is compared to its counterparts in New York City. Do you share that characterization? And, and, what, and what makes this DA's office more of a bastion of older school, tough on crime policies than other areas of New York City? Well, if you listen, if you, if you speak to the folks in, <laughs> in the Queen's DA's, uh, office, they are not uh, anti-reform at all. I, I think um, a couple months ago, they started putting out these weekly papers mm-hmm. to the public. Yeah. John Ryan, right? Yeah. Letters to the people of Queens or something exactly. like that. Report. Yeah. 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 Getting ready for talking a career as a pundit if it doesn't work out for him. Uh. Right, right. They, they've been talking about alternative sentencing and domestic mm-hmm. violence and the things that some of the, the issues that the candidates have, have uh, you know, really uh, focused in on uh, in, while they've been out uh, campaigning, but I mean, I think uh, all of us can agree that yes, uh, if if there is room for reform anywhere in, in in the boroughs of New York City, it's it's in in Queens more than anywhere else. I mean, the fact that yeah, it's I the think only I... borough without a conviction review unit, but I think David also did a story about the marijuana prosecutions in Queens, right? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's leading the uh, leading the city, and the uh, racial disparities have actually gotten worse since even as marijuana prosecutions have significantly decreased. I think what Aaron said, though, about if you talk to the people in the office, especially the the top officials, they do see themselves as reformers to an extent. And I think 
And that's why I think John Ryan has really bristled at uh, the campaign uh, being like a referendum on 28 years of Richard Brown's tenure. And for them, it's this is big for people like John Ryan or other top officials like James Quinn, Bob Masters, who have been in the office for 40 years. I think in if this were 10 or 15 years ago, that some of the things they've implemented at the time were progressive. It's just, I think, thinking has changed around some of those reforms. And there's been some, there's been inertia. And I think that it's hard to affect real change when people have been in the same position for many years. And I, I see that on a, lo- a lot of the reforms that they made when it comes to like sex trafficking court or uh, substance abuse intervention court, or drug intervention court, that people still have to plead guilty to an offense. And so that still becomes uh, a mark on their record or something hanging over them, even if they can uh, get that conviction waived by completing a program or something like that. They, it's still something that hangs over them. And so James Quinn, who's one of the top officials, uh, went to a closed Rikers meeting and talked about how a lot of the rhetoric around mass incarceration is wrong, that in fact, there's only 11 people from Queens currently in Rikers who their only offense was a misdemeanor. And maybe that's technically true that their only offense is one misdemeanor, but it kind of ignores people whose larger criminal records are basically based on low level offenses that many of the current DA candidates say they won't even prosecute. And so I think there's just a resistance to taking that that next step into considering, well, maybe we shouldn't be prosecuting these things at all. Maybe if someone has six or seven offenses and they're for marijuana possession or turnstile jumping, that you can reexamine all of those offenses and not just say, well, this is just the latest in a long line of of a criminal record. Mm. I think some of the Queen's top executive assistant district attorneys would even go far as to say that People incarcerated at Rikers right now don't include people who are there for low-level offenses like sex work or derivation, broken windows policing. That's some of the language that I've heard out of that office, too. So they don't even think that it's really the problem that candidates have made it out to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think you're right. They, they do. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And this is great because when you read about this race in particular, the word reform is ubiquitous, not just in, in, as you were saying, what the incumbent office is saying, but also in how each of the candidates is positioning themselves as champions of reform in some way. And and as criminal justice reform has progressed in local elections in the past few years, that's something we're seeing kind of across the board in some, in more progressive counties, especially where incumbents or challengers, whatever, their, their politics kind of are using the same language. So that in some way, that's the success of the movement, but also makes it it's harder to figure out who stands for what. So in your work on Queens, how are you unpacking what the form means and how do you cover so many candidates' approaches to criminal justice reform in a way that adds clarity to the fault lines? Well, for one, I, I think it's, it's just important to, even as they've sort of taken on the, the rhetoric of reform and, you know, almost very, I don't want to say radical positions, because um, I don't think... Um, I don't think you can be radical and be a prosecutor personally, but I think some of what they have been saying um, sounds great, but the bottom line is you still have to lock people up. And there are voters out there who want to know who are you actually going to go after? 
who are you prosecuting if you're not prosecuting the sort of low level offenses and some of the public nuisance things that that you know have created a, a, a you know a climate and culture of, of over policing uh, poor and, and pe uh, people of, of color uh, communities so I think uh, that's where you kind of get the clarity is like all right it's it's fine for you to say who you're not going to prosecute but you're still a prosecutor the job is to combat crime and to, to punish crime in, in a community. So what are you actually going to do? Who are you going to go after? And I think, um, I think if some of the candidates have actually answered that question in, in, uh, in some ways. But, you know, one thing, I, one thing I noticed at candidate forums is that, you know, when, when LASAC says, you know, something about uh, sort of dialing back some of the very far to the left rhetoric, um, he gets, you know, an applause from, from the audience because there are people out there that still want to know that you're going to keep them safe. Yeah, I think that we see this conflict a lot with Tiffany Caban as well, just the reform versus the balance between reform and putting people in jail or keeping clean safe with language some people might use. Um, I'm not really clear on what her, her stance is for the borough-based jails. I know that she wants to close Rikers, but that she doesn't want new jails. And so she would invest in transitional housing. But like realistically, where would the people go whose offenses rise to the level of incarceration? I don't think she's really answered that question clearly publicly. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and like kind of what both of you guys said, Queens is so, Queens is huge. And so though there are relatively few crimes compared to past years and a lot of declining to prosecute, a lot of offenses would lead to even fewer people who are going to jails or being sentenced to prison. There's still like a pretty high volume of offenses being committed. And so, yeah, it's unclear, like, where would those people go in if there were if there wasn't a jail. But then I would love to hear more about sentencing policy. And something that I think Larry Krasner made very clear when he did become prosecutor, that his citizen district attorneys were going to seek the low end of, of sentencing guidelines at pretty much all circumstances. And that's something I'd like to hear candidates talk more about, because if someone is charged and convicted of a violent crime, what is the sentencing going to be? What is it? What's going to happen? Will they pursue felony murder as a charge? Uh, if someone like there's a pretty high profile case right now that one of them is going to inherit probably where two men who uh, allegedly robbed a cell phone store, one was in the store, one was allegedly acting as a lookout. Police responded to that scene. One of the officers was shot and killed by friendly fire by another officer. And both of those suspects, both of those defendants are now charged with felony murder. And that's a controversial charge and tried talking with some of the candidates about it and just giving very vague answers to that. So want to know, like, what are some of these controversial things that they are going to actually pursue when it comes to people who are charged and convicted of, of, of violent crimes? So is it fair to say that the campaign has focused more on kind of that there's this nonviolent, violent binary sometimes in how people discuss reform? Is, is, has that played out in how people have focused on the language of reform in this election? That's kind of what I hear you I'm saying, David. I think, and maybe this is deserves some more reporting, but I think it's it's become uh, like more about what wouldn't people prosecute, less about what would they prosecute or how would they go about that. I think that, yeah, we could probably do a better job of 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 asking those questions. I think that nonviolent versus violent offenses is 
some of the binary, I guess, but I think what some of the conversation is also about what is considered a violent felony. That's not, that is not exactly violent. And so Caban, for example, is brought up, you can get charged with, I think like second degree grand larceny, consider a violent felony for stealing Amazon packages. And should that person be sentenced to a long prison term because of that? But yeah, I guess a question that I would have is how, how would they prosecute some of the more uh, violent, maybe horrific, uh, disturbing crimes? And, and I would ask, just to add to that, I would ask the, the, the candidates, what other states maybe uh, or other jurisdictions they might look to Mm. Um, if they think it's mm. being done properly elsewhere. I know California has reformed its, uh, the, the way it treats, uh, you know, felony, uh, some, in some respects, not all the way, but uh, felony murder in the same way that you mentioned, David, where if someone's the lookout and, and but in, in the course of the crime, uh, you know, someone dies, someone is killed, that both people or all people involved are charged uh, in some way with uh, in connection to the murder or to, uh, to manslaughter. California has actually passed reforms that says that, you know, you can know that you're, it's no longer, they're not going to hold folks uh, life without parole in some very uh, serious or violent crimes, uh, especially when mitigating factors show that this person you know, person person B had less to do with the actual you know violent uh, offense than 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 person A. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, with regard to some of some of the actions going on in other states as well, when it comes to reforms, I know that DA Krasner has a sentencing review unit where he's not only reviewing. Obviously, there's a conviction review unit already but he's reviewing past sentences to see if they were too severe or too intense in some way. I'd be curious if this is something that other DA race candidates in this race would be interested in adopting or implementing as well. Mm-hmm. On the conviction and integrity unit point, I think that, Kristen, you brought up that earlier as something that, that Queens currently doesn't have. And that's an issue that's come up more in the past few weeks alone because of Eva DuVernay's new um, film, When They See Us, on the Central Park 5 case, which has amplified the conversation around wrongful convictions and the role of DAs in, in that and changing that. How has that issue played out in this election? And what are the odds of real reform on the issue of conviction integrity unit and conviction reviews in the aftermath of this primary? I, I think it's safe think, to say, I, I, for, so for the appeal, I did a story about the lack of a conviction integrity in Queens, and uh, it's, Queens is the only borough in, the, in New York City without a, a conviction uh, review or conviction integrity unit. Um, and, and let me just say that, you know, I did talk to the Queens DA's office and they, you know, they say they've had a policy where it, when people come forward with allegations of wrongful convictions, DA Brown or Richard Brown would assign those cases or those allegations for review to his executive staff. Uh, and then they would build a team and uh, report back to Richard Brown, and then they they would sort of go forward from there. But there's not an, an official integrity unit, and most experts say that any good integrity unit is going to be independent of the rest of the office. So if you if DA Brown had his top brass reviewing these cases, cases of their colleagues, or in certain cases, cases that they themselves prosecuted, that uh, is not really what makes, I mean, at least in, in, in the eyes of academics and, and folks who, you know, are, are teaching criminal justice around the nation, 
that's, that's not what you want in a conviction integrity unit. That said, I asked all of the candidates, what are you going to do in regards to conviction integrity unit? And all of them said they support it. Um, mm-hmm. And some um, had more detailed responses on that than, than others. For instance, Rory Lansman has had a, a conviction integrity unit policy uh, established for much longer than any of the candidates. Mina Malik released hers recently. Um, uh, I, I think it was this month. And the thing that was striking, that, that, that struck me rather, was that all of the candidates, except for Mina Malik, could not name one case that they would currently review. And I think in in recent debates and forums, they've talked about the Chanel Lewis case, Um, but there are many older cases that could be be good for for review in a a new revamped DA's office and or under a newly created Convection Integrity Unit in Queens. It just really surprises me that they wouldn't, even just to score points, PR points, basically, just start the conviction review unit that has been relatively successful in Brooklyn that the DA's office in Staten Island is starting and received funding from the city council. And I think the next candidate will do that. Greg Lasak has made it basically a key tenant of his entire campaign from the very beginning. His first campaign video in October last year featured people who he helped reverse convictions for during his time as a a top official in DA's office. Malik has uh, really promotes her role in uh, the Brooklyn DA's office in helping to start the conviction review unit there. Lanceman, of course, as a city council member, helps allocate funding, including to Staten Island, to start the conviction review unit. So I, I think the next DA will definitely put that into place. But yeah, that's a really interesting point, Aaron, that none of the candidates could could bring up a, a, a case that they would want to review. Except and for Mina Malik. Mina Malik did except bring, um, the case of Carlson Roman. Who, a specific example she gave? That's specific. Sorry, broke the law. Got it. Yeah, that was a great. That was a great story. Uh, so you're you're saying you would do this, but like you've got to have a couple of cases in mind already, or have hasn't someone approached your campaign, you know, asking for for some help in this mm-hmm. regard? And and Amina Malik was the only one to to offer uh, one example. I, I don't want to give her more yeah. credit than than is due because it was just one example. But but yeah. Um, Another issue that I want to jump on is the debate around Rikers Island, the debate around how, when to, to close it, whether to close it even, and what to replace it with rages on, and that, and that has echoed in the election, as you mentioned, um, some of you mentioned earlier. So in what way will the identity of the next DA impact that conversation and impact what happens to jail space in the city? To my knowledge, DAs don't actually have any kind of official input on what happens with the closure with Rikers and the plans for the borough-based jails. Is, am I right in that? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's gonna. I think the plan. Well, I'm sorry. You continue. Oh no. Uh, so basically, it's just they've all weighed in, right? Yeah. They all have opinions about it. Most of the candidates support closing Rikers, but most don't think that the mayor's borough-based jail plan is a good idea for Queens. I think the only one who supports it fully across the board is Rory Lanceman. But yeah, um, it's, it's obviously a key issue in the DA race, but as for their actual power in, in what happens next for the city, I think it's pretty non-existent. Yeah, I think the plan is going to continue and we'll see the next mayor supports it and the council members continue to mm-hmm. 
support without getting cold feet. But I, I think where the next VA, the role that they will have is could impact the actual final plan because if they are able to reduce the jail population significantly, that could have an impact on just how large the facilities are. And so the mayor's office has already signaled that they're going to reduce, or that they estimate the prison, uh, the jail population, sorry, will decrease from uh, initial estimate of 5,000 by 2026 to 4,000. And the next district attorney will have a huge role to play in ensuring that the, that that estimate is accurate and that maybe could even get the jail population lower than that. And that, again, could affect the final design because if you have a place designed right now for 5,700 detainees for an estimated 5,000 detainee population, they've said that they would consider making it smaller to accommodate a 4,000 detainee population. So if they're willing to do that, maybe they'd be willing to go even smaller. I don't know. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I should mention that Melinda Katz, obviously the Queensboro president, does have some input into the general city planning process. She had a land use hearing last Thursday to talk about the borough-based jail plan, and she has to issue an advisory opinion by July 3rd. So she does have some sort of right input into this process. And I think one other way that, that uh, and I, I guess it's kind of echoing what David said, but one other way that, that the DA's office is going to have an impact on, you know, how big or small uh, the new jail is, is just like with the, the re- revamping of diversion programs in the Queens DA's office. Mm-hmm. Um, I know mm-hmm. many yeah. candidates are saying that, you know, they want to set up diversion programs where it's almost like the, the person is, doesn't even touch the, the criminal legal system, which means they're not uh, they're not being detained at all, and just being steered towards community-based programs, community-oriented groups uh, who who already know you know that that person's family or, or knows that person personally, and can and sort of intervene before it becomes a, a, a matter of charging and putting someone into into the system. So that, I think the diversion programs will also play a role in what happens with Rikers Island and, and the new jails. But there has been a major spectrum on the point about diversion and DA elections really across across the country in the past few years. There's been a conversation around whether to just drop charges entirely and not touch and not touch certain categories of cases versus how to expand diversion programs and alternative ways of, of approaching charges. And, and and this has obviously played out in this campaign with the conversation around whether to just not prosecute some cases at all. And we were talking about that earlier. How has this election advanced that conversation or or how have the contrast played out between whether to just not prosecute at all, whether to prosecute in a new manner, uh, whether it's just a matter of not incarcerating? What are the contrasts on this issue? You know, all the candidates pretty early on were down with basically like prosecutorial reform 101, which not prosecuting certain low level offenses, uh, marijuana possession, turnstile jumping. I think gradually more and more have been expanding that list, uh, I think Lanceman was, was pretty early on with an expansive list of offenses he wouldn't prosecute, Caban also. Um, and I think you see more uh, Melinda Katz starting to borrow some of that rhetoric, talking about uh, what she wouldn't prosecute and also how she wouldn't request bail under almost all circumstances. And that has evolved from an earlier position of not requesting bail on misdemeanors. One of the main um, issues I think that they've really diverged on is sex work. Um, And that's been something that people have changed their positions on a little bit too. 
Um, right now, I think at this point, all the candidates support declining to prosecute sex workers, and then they basically disagree on the constellation of the rest of sex work related charges, like loitering, um, you know, patronizing promotion. Um, but in the beginning, from the first debate, I think held by Vocal New York till now, their positions have changed. Some of them, I think, even at an early forum, Greg Lasik said that sex work was like bad for the community and it was really detrimental to quality of life. And now you see him saying that he would decline to prosecute sex workers. So I think that's a really interesting shift. But also, it's been, I think for me, pers- my, my experience is that it has been difficult to follow the candidates on their positions. I think you're right, Christine, that they, they do, they, they, most of them have moved to the left on sort of the list. But just recently, LASAC went back to saying that all of these things are, are sort of can be case by case basis. Yeah, uh, yeah. he said that to me too. Yeah, like that he's willing to, you know, yes, he, he doesn't want to be a mass incarcerator, but, but he's not going to commit to having any sort of blanket policy for, for some of these issues, including turnstile jumpers and, uh, and, and sex work. So it's, it's just, it, it's been, I, I guess in my experience, it's been difficult to pin them down on those issues because they seem to uh, be trying to outwoke each other. I totally agree. I think <laughs> that their positions yeah. have changed from forum to forum. And then even when you ask them for their decline to prosecute list, like that might differ from what they actually say at a forum the next day. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> That's a good point. Cause it's hard because there's so many forums in so many different places and so many different audiences, and uh, the messaging can change. You can, there could be five forums in one week, you go a week without going to one of them, and then things have changed a bit, and uh, it can be hard to keep track of. It would be interesting, I think it would be really great to get to try to get those would-not-prosecute lists, like the same things that Rachel Rollins got a lot of acclaim for publishing, and that Larry Krasner did as well. And I think certain candidates have those and have those explicitly. I think Lanceman does, but I think other candidates, like you said, are definitely talk about a case by case basis and don't want to really commit to anything. And especially maybe hedging their bets if they, they do get in office. And then that's a one campaign promise that they don't have to hold their break. Mm. The last question um, before I, I, let, I let you all go. So the DA Association of New York, which is the statewide association that lobbies on behalf of the state's DAs, has been in the news a lot the past year as warning against or opposing some of the reforms that have been discussed. And uh, I know that some of the candidates, David, I know that, that you heard about this a few months ago, have said that they wish to withdraw from that statewide DA Association. What are the stakes right. of that conversation around statewide reforms and around this question of whether these candidates would remain in the association? I think, so you hear from certain candidates who say that you need to be in the system to change it. And so certain candidates say they would stay in so that they could try to affect change from the inside. Other candidates say there's no point in being in, especially when it, they seem to advocate for the status quo. Um, And then hardcore reformers say that by prosecutors from bigger counties like Queens remaining in the uh, in DASME, it it lends credibility to some of the more uh, status quo or regressive prosecutors in smaller counties, especially rural counties throughout the state. And so I don't know, I guess it's hard for me to have an opinion on that. I can see those those different perspectives. I think that ultimately it just matters if you're going to stay in it that you're willing to criticize things that you don't agree with and not kind of, if, if you say you're reforming, you say you disagree, you want to stay in DASNY, 
than continue criticizing from the inside. But I don't really get, I guess ultimately I don't see what the point is if you are going to criticize all of what they're doing and say you're a reformer and that, that they don't uphold your uh, reform perspective. So I guess I kind of talk myself through my opinion there. I think that, yeah, I think if, if you're going to criticize them, then why even be in it? Mm-hmm. And there are candidates. Right, and Caban, who wouldn't? Yeah. Yeah, right. I think Lanceman wouldn't join. Caban wouldn't join. You know, it, it, especially the more progressive uh, or the, the far, furthest to the, le- the left of the field. It's hard to say you're going to bring transformational change to that office and remain part of a group that has opposed pretty much all of the reforms that you're, you're promising to bring to, to the county. It, it just seems like the only way you can have credibility with constituents is to not join um, DASNY. And I mean, we're, yeah. we're talking about, I mean, just for example, discovery reform. And, and even back when, when Cuomo signed the executive order uh, saying that, that his office would, uh, not his office, but rather the attorney general's office, would investigate officer-involved shootings, DASNY, you know, opposed that. Um, yeah. opposed, you know, bringing in a special prosecutor or, or taking it outside of the office so that, you know, police aren't policing the police or, or that the, the close relationship between DAs and, and police officers doesn't continually be, you know, doesn't continue to be a problem. Um, when it comes to public confidence and uh, investigations of officer involved force. Mm. I think it's notable to point out too to that whoever becomes the next Queen CA, if they were to opt out of DASNY, would be an anomaly for the rest of the city, right? Because Brooklyn's Eric Gonzalez and Manhattan Cy Vance are definitely in it. I think Vance was a past president. I'm not sure about Staten Island, but it would be a breaking with precedent. I wonder if it could, if it would also kind of be a model for the other DAs to follow and because they would start getting pressure and saying, well, Queens DA opted out of joining this uh, organization. Are you going to do that? And that would become an issue in upcoming elections like the Manhattan DA election where uh, Dan Court, Assemblymember Dan Court is uh, positioning himself as the, as the progressive alternative to Vance. Yeah, I guess we'll see. On that note, I want to think, Go ahead, finish the last word, and then and then. Oh, I ju- I just think it's gonna. I think it's. I think that it's. This has been an amazing race, and it's been an amazing way to raise awareness about the incredible power that a prosecutor has, and that this is just the beginning because this is this is happening in Queens right now. There's going to be more DA elections. Is someone going to push Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn to embrace even more progressive reforms? How are people going to challenge Cy Vance in Manhattan? And this is really just the beginning here in New York, or Maybe not the beginning, but I think a continuation of some of the changes that began in Brooklyn uh, are now becoming more intense here in Queens and are going to continue to expand throughout the city. Great. Well, on that exciting note, I want to thank all of you for joining this conversation. It's been really interesting, and I hope others find it um, interesting as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Awesome being here. Awesome talking to you guys. Thank you.